You're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Explaining why these selfless acts are actually advantageous is important. Evolution is a slow and unguided process. Well, I'm Canadian and this is the school I go to and this is how much I love my culture. Let me share this with you. Presented by Henry Standage. Hey, welcome to the Western Science Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Henry Standage, and today we are with Dr. Paul Mensing from the Department of Biology here at Western. Paul studies the interactions between people and marine environments with the hopes of promoting ocean sustainability. He came onto the show to talk about some of the environments where humans impose on marine life and how we reconcile with the effects we have on these habitats. Then, later on, we talk about how media exposure on programs such as the Discovery Channel's Shark Week impacts how people feel about sharks and whether it's ultimately a force for good or force for evil. Anyway, here's the interview. What are some of the various ways humans and marine environments interact and what are the interactions that you primarily study in your work? Yeah, great. So, yeah, so there's obviously a lot of different interactions that humans have with the ocean. And that can go from, you know, a more provisional aspect of ecosystem services in terms of uh, food provision, getting food out of the ocean. And that ranges down to things like recreational ecosystem services where we go out and enjoy time on the ocean, let's say sea kayaking or something like that. And in between it's kind of something around ecotourism where you go out and let's say whale watching is a really good example where people are going out into the ocean and paying money for that. So it's feeding into the economy, but we're not actually removing any species from uh, the ocean for the most part, at least, or doing any uh, particular damage to them. The more provisional approach, so where people are fishing for food, there's different levels of that. We have commercial fisheries where those are, actually going out and exploiting large numbers of species or numbers of individuals. And then those go on to be sold for food. And then you have kind of artisanal fisheries where they are actually just obtaining fish for their own for their own food supply. So it's not going into a larger market. And also we have recreational fisheries. So they might go out and they potentially will catch species um, sometimes that's catch and release, and sometimes that's actually a take fishery as well. So we kind of have different levels of intensity of fisheries that are interacting with the ocean as well. Something we tend to do as humans is look at these great mammoth creatures like a shark and fail to look at what it does as a contributor to a marine ecosystem. So what essential contributions does an animal like the shark take responsibility for? Yeah, I think a lot of the time we consider sharks to be these big apex predators. So they're kind of sitting on top of the ecosystem and they play an important role there in terms of regulating what we call like mesopredators. So these are predators that are kind of lower down food chain and they can regulate them directly, so by feeding on them, but they can also regulate them indirectly by things like developing kind of landscapes of fear. So if you see a shark that's coming, it means that you're gonna have to hunker down it means you're not gonna be able to go feed. So even even in cases where they're not directly consuming those mesopredators, they're still having an indirect effect by putting fear into them, essentially. 
I should be said though that not all all sharks are actually apex predators. There's lots of sharks that would be more scavengers. So we think of uh, small dogfish. They're more scavenging on potentially discards that are put into the ocean or other dead animals that are available to them. They're really feeding on a whole range of things. Um, but the classic examples we think of as apex predators are big things like great whites on top of the food chain, um, large range in terms of their movements. But our two largest fish species are also sharks, and those are whale sharks and basking sharks. And of course, they are uh, planktivores, essentially. They're feeding on zooplankton mostly um, near the surface, sometimes down in deeper layers. But they uh, are not acting as apex predators in that case. Um, but they are kind of majestic shark species as we think of them and are, are really important actually for ecotourism as well. Now, regardless of how I might feel about the killing of wildlife, such as a shark, I can at least understand that sometimes there is a benefit to using the parts of an animal to make a tool that's useful for humanity. But sometimes I see content like the 2011 Gordon Ramsay documentary Shark Bait, where he deep dives into the cultural practice of citizens eating shark fin soup in Asia. And the dog makes it clear that shark fin soup isn't nutritional, nor particularly tasty. It's this totally luxury meal, and I think any commercial product inherently relies on sustainability. So why do we see sharks being put near extinction by overfishing for something like shark fin soup, which has no qualities most people would deem as necessary? Yes, shark finning obviously has um, kind of risen to prominence in terms of public knowledge about it with, with things like the documentaries you're talking about, in particular things like Shark Water, which was by a Canadian filmmaker as well. That really sort of alerted people to this major problem. And one of the big issues with shark finning is kind of a wasteful process and method. Essentially, if you bring a shark on, you cut off its fins, and often they're put back into the water alive, or they're alive at least for a bit, before they're going to succumb to their injuries. So the idea is that we're taking relatively small amount of meat in, in terms of what we're taking off the shark. And as you say, that in some cases might not be actually nu nutritious or a good meal, but we're actually removing small amount of flesh, but we're, we're, we're causing total mortality to the shark. Now, Canada has implemented shark finning bans. So one of the ways, okay. one of the policies we can do to reduce shark finning and say that at the whole shark, if the shark is landed, it has to be landed with the fins intact, right? So you can't sell a shark on the market that doesn't have its fins. And just very recently around this time last year, Canada also banned the import and export of shark fins. And that was in part due to that documentary I was mentioning earlier about shark water and um, exposing the, how large that problem is. And so by Canada being one of the first countries to implement a shark finning ban in terms of import and export, that kind of makes a strong statement and tries to reduce the impact that shark finning has on shark population. How common is it to see governments put in regulations for overfishing? The most infamous example of fishing regulations gone wrong is the Atlantic cod collapse. We had the collapse of the fishery that still really hasn't recovered and a really a loss of the way of life for many people in, in Newfoundland who were 
generational fishermen, um, all of a sudden now they had to try and be retrained or try and find new jobs. So that was a part of their way of life. So yeah, basically after the cod collapse, a lot of our fishing shifted to, to species more like crustaceans. So we go for lobsters, we go for shrimp now. So northern shrimp is a big fishery in Canada as well. And those fisheries seem to be a little bit more resilient than fin fish fisheries to overfishing, or at least they can be more sustainably fished. So one of the things that's called those fishing down the food chain, we essentially removed uh, Atlantic cod at the top of the food web. And from there, we started fishing for things that were smaller and smaller. So that can still have devastating effects on the ecosystem as we sort of progress our fishing to smaller and smaller things that are there. Obviously, there are some, let's say, for example, in Europe, there are major fishing, fishery regulations. You've got a lot of different countries fishing in the same waters, and you have seen issues there with uh, stock collapses as well. In again, cod really collapsed around the, the UK and Ireland there. And they tried to bring in policies similar to shark fin banning. So it's kind of parallels with banning shark finning. If you, if, you, if you take a shark, you can't remove pieces of it. You need to land the whole thing. And sometimes the idea behind that is that that can be a deterrent to fishers if they go out in order to haul back all of that meat. If they're not going to use all of that meat, that might deter them. Yeah, last year, me and my housemates hosted a get-together with friends where we said, look, we'll buy all the supplies for this. Can everyone just bring five bucks and we're going to donate all the money to Four Oceans, which is a nonprofit that seeks to take garbage out of the ocean. But to what degree should I have been skeptical that they would actually follow through with their promise that every 50 bucks equals 100 pounds of garbage taken out of the ocean? Because that was something I thought about at the time. How, how trustworthy is an organization like this? Good example of that type of thing where you, where you don't necessarily know what is going on behind the scenes is the Marine Stewardship Council. Have you ever heard of them? No. Yeah, so they're like, uh, there's what, we're call, what we call an eco-label. So they go out and they assess a fishery and they determine based on information about the the catches that they've been taking and the policies and procedures that are set up for that fishery and let's say the historical catches over time determine whether or not that fishery is sustainable. You go to McDonald's now. I've never actually had this, but the, the fish of filet there, if you go through the drive through next to the fish sandwich, you'll see the blue uh, Marine Stewardship Council label beside it, right? So the idea is that that gives you as a consumer information about that product that says, hey, this has been audited by a third party. It says that this is a sustainable fish. In that case, I guess the idea is that you would feel more comfortable buying that product knowing that it's been audited as sustainable. And so there's a lot of different fisheries that the MSC, the Marine Stewardship Council, would kind of certify as sustainable. But there's also been some controversy in terms of when the fishery actually hires the Marine Stewardship Council to certify them. So they have to pay uh, a fee to them. So the Marine Stewardship Council needs probably to certify a given number of 
fisheries is sustainable in order to kind of sustain their yeah it's it's interesting sometimes you're not quite sure but yeah in some cases you might not be getting what you what you paid for is that's a narrative that is really common to see in pharmaceuticals whether it be someone like dr oz who's constantly recommending fat burners or whatever but no that's interesting i'll definitely look out for that next time i'm at mcdonald's Honestly, next time you go through, I always try and tell my students, like, it doesn't seem like a lot of them actually go through the McDonald's drive-thru. I'm always like, hey, when was the last time you went to the McDonald's drive-thru? And nobody kind of raises their hand. I mean, the, the thing that you kind of alluded to just there a second ago, kind of getting almost misleading information sometimes about a product. And that can be a bit of green, you know, what we call greenwashing often is that, you know, you think that this product is really sustainable because... Uh, it's making claims to that effect, but in reality, it, it might not be as sustainable as is purporting to be, or might not be sustainable at all, right? So using that type of eco-label or claims about sustainability in order to, you know, convince the consumer to buy that product. So we have to watch out for things like that. I'd love to talk about some of your research now. You've done something really, really cool where you track these rare, sometimes borderline extinct species of sharks that have traveled hundreds of miles from their native habitat as a reaction to these habitats no longer being viable to survive with them. So first, how do you find these rare species of shark? And what are the next steps when you do find one? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, one of the more difficult things about working with marine species is that a lot of the data we have comes from fisheries themselves, right? So it's very, it's logistically expensive to take a boat out into the ocean to conduct surveys to, to find out what population numbers are like for different species. And so we often rely on catch data from fisheries themselves to tell us about how those species are doing. Sometimes that data can be not as accurate as we want it to be, but also sometimes those catches go unreported or we have illegal fishing happening as well. We don't get that information. And again, we rely on fisheries data a lot to tell us about how species are doing. There's a couple of different ways that we can get information and particularly for rare species. So once a species becomes endangered or critically endangered, rarely is there any longer a fishery for them. Right, So we kind of fish them down to a level where they might be endangered, and then we stop that fishery. So Canada stopped shark fisheries back in the 90s, early 90s, right? But that means we also now don't have any way to gain information about them. And and that information is really important to help track their recoveries. What I am interested in and what some of my research has been about is finding other data sources for those critically endangered species or vulnerable species that we can use to help kind of inform conservation and management. One of the best ways we've found so far is using some forms of citizen science. So untrained scientists that would collect data either through recreational fisheries or also through sightings databases as well. So if you're walking along the coast and you see a shark or you are on a ferry across from somewhere and you see a shark, you can log that information. And then we can use that information to determine where the sharks are, when they are there, how that's changed over time. And so that's actually really helpful 
again, it's trying to find that, find where we can get data when we do not have fisheries as a, as a reliable source of, of data anymore. How far will a shark drift from its birthplace? Yeah, that's, that's so interesting is that we have a lot of these species are, are making really, really long distance. I sort of qualify migration there because migration is normally moving from point A to B and then back to point A at some point. Um, so we know, let's say, and often these species might be se- uh, separated on the Western Atlantic versus the Eastern Atlantic. And we've got movement that often happens seasonally where they're moving, maybe overwintering in waters that are, uh, this is the Northern Hemisphere here, waters that let's say could be off the coast of Africa, but then they come back up to places like the UK and Ireland um, during the summer where you get a lot of high productivity in the waters happening there. So we've got migrations like that, but then we're also finding that they will go across the Atlantic as well. And that's what two of our papers last year found is that we've got poor beagle sharks, which are like, in my head, kind of mini great whites. They are moving. We found one where a shark from a recreational fishery tagging program moved from Ireland over to off the coast of Canada. And that kind of cross-Atlantic or transatlantic movement is really important because often species are managed within these fisheries zones. So if we get species that move back and forth between those zones, it means that it has some implications for how we try and manage them. You know, we have to manage it at a higher level than on either side if we've got movement between them. There was also evidence that we found for basking sharks moving again, across the Atlantic. And those are, those are that's thousands of kilometers. And we don't know if they actually turn around and go back at some stage or if they are now in the population in the Western Atlantic. But Let me interject of, for one second. Can you yeah. just tell us quickly the difference between a basking shark and a typical shark? Basking sharks look like very similar to brown great white sharks. So if you saw one swimming along with its mouth closed, you, you would be understandably terrified. But when they open their mouth, they're basically feeding on large swarms of zooplankton. So there's lots of videos of them swimming near the surface of the water with their mouths really wide open. But again, there's no, there's no sharp teeth in there. Um, and so- they're... It, it yep. sounds like you're saying in a, uh, scientifically that they're the old men who eat applesauce. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I guess you could, you could put it that way. One of my colleagues over at Queen's University Belfast, they just completed a study where they actually put an accelerometer. So that's the same sort of thing that would be in your, like a Fitbit watch or something. So it monitors your steps. In this case, they can use it to... Um, look at acceleration in the waters. They actually put these on the back of the fins of these sharks. And in that case, the shark was found to breach at a speed that was relatively comparable to a great white. So even though they're often seen as slow swimmers, they can pull really high speeds breaching out of the water. And they often do breach out of the water as well. So they will actually, you know, there's lots of cool videos of them kind of flying out of the water. I mean, they're close to the size of a bus. Back to what we were talking about prior to my applesauce comment, (laughs) you must be interested to see how COVID and quarantine is going to affect these sharks that were wandering. Now they'll they'll be months without human activity in their areas. What are you curious to look at when this is all said and done? 
it's interesting. I, I've been asked before what the potential effects of COVID would be on the ocean. And I think it's a tough question to answer in terms of whether or not global fisheries have really stopped during this phase, or if there's been a big reduction in the amount of fisheries that have been uh, happening. Certainly, I guess you wouldn't have as much coastal boat traffic, um, and that can reduce things like ship strikes um, as well, and you might have less recreational fishing. But I think for the most part, a lot of the damage that we're doing to the ocean is um, more chronic. So things like climate change, so ocean warming, plastic pollution that we have in there, and historical overfishing are things that are not going to be too, too altered by what is looking like kind of a six-month hiatus in, in uh, some of our ocean activities. Yeah, and next, I really do want to talk to you about Shark Week because I think it's one of the more interesting cultural phenomenons that we have where you have all these citizens who probably don't think too much about sharks all year and then become these manic shark enthusiasts for one week. But how do you think that plays into the perception of sharks? Do you think ultimately it's good for them that they're getting this exposure that shows their raw beauty, their power, their uniqueness? Or do you think it's this force for evil where the violent depiction of sharks on the shows makes people less sympathetic towards them? I think popular media plays a really important role in trying to move our societies to be more sustainable. And I think Shark Week is kind of another example of that. Even if you've got a Shark Week program talking about shark attacks, you're still learning more about um, the species. And often those are not going to be limited just talking about shark attacks, talking about how beautiful these ocean predators are. Um, and so I think that actually helps in terms of people learning more about them. Because again, let's say for anyone who lives away from the coast, they might not be ever worried about being attacked by a shark, but they can be fascinated by them. Just general exposure, I think people are learning more and more about these creatures, and they're just, they're fascinating. No, I, com I completely agree. Uh, it definitely romanticizes how beautiful and powerful these animals are. But at the same time, if you watch Shark Week and you know, maybe you find it scary, you might not be as furious when you see something like sharks being used for shark fin soup. Why don't you tell us next five, ten years where you think your research is heading? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that we're working towards is trying to find out where and when sharks are going to occur, what their wider movements are like in the ocean. And we're starting to be able to reveal that a lot more with things like biotelemetry and biologgers um, that allow us to track movements much more specifically. So we could put a, a tag on a shark, and even if that shark is at depth, we can use things like the amount of light that is in the water column and pressure sensors to determine potentially where that shark is in, in the world based on what, what time the sun is coming up and what time the sun, the sun is setting. So you can get a lot of really detailed information about those movements, and we're starting to reveal more and more about generally their movement ecology, and that gives us a lot of information in terms of management and conservation plans. 
and then trying to take that and look at what might happen with climate change. And for a lot of these species, temperature is really important in terms of determining where they are going to be. Uh, you know, for instance, there have been studies that have identified what they call the Goldilocks range for tiger sharks around 22 degrees water temperature and associating that with when they're, when people are going to be potentially in, in the water and when there might be a higher risk of shark attack at that stage. So we can use some of those environmental variables to determine when and where these species are going to be. And once we have more information about species movements, then we can start making more robust management plans and thinking about how we can avoid or mitigate some of those anthropogenic threats. So things like boat strikes, things like uh, entanglement in fishing gear. So I think for the more and more information we get, the more informed our, our models and policies and practices are going to get. And the more informed the public becomes too. So again, like, like the sort of this popular media that we've been talking about throughout this, is that, that uh, the awareness is going to keep continue to grow. And again, an example of the shark fin ban Canada, part of that was driven by um, Oceanic Canada and people who worked with the director of shark waters. So there's uh, this continuing pressure once that popular media kind of exposes issues, they can put pressure on, on governments to, to put in policies that will help protect those species. Right now, we're seeing how powerful people can be when they come together and, and really fight for change. Uh, so with regards to overfishing, as a citizen, what can we do? What would you recommend that people who care about these issues do next? Yeah, I think we're really seeing within, within the fishing industry, but also in a lot of different areas around environment sustainability, that people can have an important voice, even individuals can, right? So another analogy I'd like to bring up when we think about the microbead ban. So these were the little mm -hmm. microbeads that used to be in face, face washes and things like that. The drive to really remove those from products was started from, you know, non-governmental organizations and consumers putting pressure on industry to remove those. And so even before the Canadian government banned the use of uh, microbeads, there was a lot of pressure coming from the individual. So another thing um, which we were talking about earlier as well is, well, what can an individual do? Well, you can choose fish that have been sustainably caught. And again, sometimes those eco labels like the Marine Stewardship Council can help you identify those. So support for non-governmental organizations to try and help drive their advocacy forward. And knowing that the company that you're working with or purchasing a ticket with is sustainably and safely conducting tourism is something else that people can do. Well, this was a lot of fun. We'll wrap up the interview now, but thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a, it was a pleasure uh, to be on and thanks for the invite. Great. Well, thanks, Paul. Yeah, cheers. Thanks a lot for reaching out, Henry. I really appreciate it. That concludes another episode of Western Science Speaks. 
To make sure you stay up to date on the latest episodes and research from our community, subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, and Podbean by searching Western U Science. You can also find previous episodes of the show, as well as research by Paul Mensink, at uo.ca slash sci, as in the first three letters of the word science. For now, I'm Henry Standage signing out. Thanks for listening.